Welcome to another episode of The Zag here with 2015 fellow Lindsay Brianza is here. Excited to connect with her. We used to work together at KIPP. We haven't talked to each other in a while. So if we seem familiar with each other, we are. She's going to talk school stuff, education stuff, and we'll also talk about LA life. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Zag. Let's get to it. All right, Lindsay, how are you? Hi, Eric. I'm doing well, thanks. Oh, you have like a serious podcast voice that was totally different than us talking before we started recording. <laughs> no, that's really a non, not intentional. In any nice. Well, listen, I'm glad you're on. We're in an NLC Institute week. So the fellows return for this coming weekend for their second session. We're also doing another engaged session and the topic is education, which is appropriate because that's the field you work in. So what is your exact title these days at KIPLA Charter Schools? I am... Um, the Director of Public Programs and Authorizer Relations. And the authorizing part I want to talk to you about, because I think one of the misnomers I encounter for folks who don't work in the field of education or know all the details as much as we do because we're in it for our jobs, um, folks don't necessarily think charter schools have the same scrutiny or uh, don't have to be as compliant on certain things as traditional schools do. And so that I think would be a statement you would disagree with. So what exactly does it mean to, to authorize a, a charter school who does it and how do you make sure you keep being authorized? Right. Yeah. Whenever folks say that, it kind of makes me laugh, laugh a little inside because I, if that were the case then I totally wouldn't have a job yeah, <laughs> um, and my job would be as hard as it is. So the um, authorizer side of my work really, so one, you can exist as a, as a charter school unless you are successfully uh, approved by a local district, or in some cases, uh, the county office or the state board of ed. But in most cases, the local school district has to authorize your charter, approve your charter, and then that kind of binds you two together in a relationship for five years where they provide oversight on basically, are you doing the things that you said you were going to do in your charter petition? And are you following you know, all state and federal guidelines? So then when they come and visit, let's say you turn in a charter, you say you're going to do these things. The school board's mm -hmm. like, hey, this sounds like a great idea. Families are excited. Kids will benefit, all that good stuff. So let's say it's two years later. Uh, they come and check. What exactly do they look for? Yeah. Um, so our schools are primarily in one district. So that has been my experience. Um, Los Angeles Unified really looks kind of at four areas, our governance, our uh, financial status, our fiscal policies, our academic performance, and our operations. And so they're, they're really trying to check to see, like, are you a healthy school? Are you going to be successful uh, in your ability to provide the services that you said you were going to do? And it typically happens within the first year. I don't think any authorizer would wait two years to visit a school. Right. So then when the authorizing team comes for that audit, do you feel like they're operating off a very strict script and it's a pretty cut and dry, hey, this is this is in check mark, this is not in not a check mark, or is it more of a an art, a negotiation, a conversation with the people who are there looking at the school? Well, I think at its foundation it definitely needs to be like the first description that you had because they authorize so many charter schools. There there's definitely a rubric, there's definitely a flow. Um, but each school is a unique uh situation, right? So the stories behind the data, what's going on on the day-to-day, -day, that is the conversational piece, but the foundation is uh, a rubric. 
And then you know, when I explained some of this process, and you obviously explained it better than I did because it's your your job. But when I share this idea of the the authorizer or the the audit that happens, folks often ask me, do traditional public schools go through a similar process? What is the answer to that question? No, not. From my understanding, they do not. Um, at the end of the year, we get our report back from that oversight visit. We get a score um, at five years when we need to renew that charter. All of that data is looked back, I, as it should be. You know, it's evaluating the progress or performance of the school. But that is unique to the charter schools. Um, you know, regular district schools don't get a report at the end of the year, the same type of report that we do, um, and scores. And then what do you feel like people misunderstand about the differences between charter schools and traditional schools? What do you usually find yourself having to share with people that is true in your experience working for KIPP? Well, the other side of my work is um, ensuring that we meet all federal and state funding compliance on the programmatic side. And so when I go to trainings or meetings, I'm meeting my counterparts at district offices. And they're always surprised that we have someone kind of like working on federal compliance or state compliance. And so I think uh, we actually have to do more of that than what folks think. Um, sometimes we have to do more. So, for example, there's specific funding or, um, for serving low-income students that comes with a certain set of compliance. We have to do that, and a school that doesn't serve low-income students doesn't. Then they may be a traditional district school. So... It, it just totally depends on on the situation of the school, and I don't think that people realize uh, how much compliance work we do have. And then have things changed a lot? Because you've been with KIPP, what, five years now? How long have you been there? Uh, it's been about four and a half years. Yeah, so when you were there, how many schools did KIPP have when you started? Ooh, do you remember? I think like seven. just opened. No, I think it was 11 schools. Oh, that many. Okay. <laughs> um, and I don't think I actually know this. What were you doing before working at KIPP? I worked at the um, Center for Latino Community uh, Health and Leadership Training out of Cal State Long Beach and the Research Foundation in particular. I was working on a, a STEM grant provided to us by the Department of Education to implement a peer mentoring program for first-generation students studying STEM you know, fields and the STEM fields. And did you ever think about becoming a teacher ever in your life? Did you ever want to do... I did. Math or science, middle school. I'm sure Kip would hire you right now. They need people. <laughs> I know. I'd have to go get my credential first. Um, but yes, I did in high school. I wanted to be uh, an English teacher just because I was really inspired by the English teachers that I had. Um, and then now as I'm older and I think about if I ever did make a transition to, to the classroom, I would want to teach math because of my experience at the university, seeing that there are not a lot of women studying in those fields. And, you know, as uh you know, girls are growing, the, um, the interest in math is declining or for whatever reasons they're going on in classrooms. Um, we're not seeing them at the same levels in these, in these majors. So yeah, that's where I would want to go. And then going back to your job now. So what would happen or maybe put it this way, has it ever happened where, um, any of the KIPP schools did not pass their authorization audit? I didn't hear that question, Eric. Yeah, I'll say it again. So is there ever been a case where a KIPP school did not pass the audit and so they weren't recommended to be reauthorized? Has that ever happened? No, no, that hasn't happened. Got it. That's good. Yeah. That's good for families, good for kids, good good for you as well. Yes. Um, but then I think, but there are cases in the charter world over the history of charters being in Los Angeles where that has happened, correct? Yes, I believe so. Yeah. yeah. 
I think that's important too, because folks, I think, don't often realize that there is a reauthorization process for a reason, and that if a school is underperforming or did shady things with their budget or things like that, there would be would be consequences for that. Absolutely, yeah. as there should be. Yeah, absolutely. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, so sort of looking more generally at education in LA, and we'll take a short break, but what do you feel like would be the most uh, important thing that folks who aren't in the education field uh, could do to support good schools happening in Los Angeles? Is it actions they could take politically? Is it um, things they could do for their local school? Like, What would you feel like would be the most beneficial for kids and families from folks that aren't directly involved in it? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think First and foremost, we elevating the teacher profession, I think, is really important. Um, I think it's one of the hardest jobs anyone can have. And and I think if we can elevate the status and how teaching is seen in society, that will have tremendous help. Um, I think another piece is just paying attention and a collective accountability for outcomes, student outcomes. Um, I think we are all, we all have a stake in ensuring that our youth now are prepared to lead our world in the future. And if we have fifth graders who are still reading at like a second grade level or a whole groups of students who aren't graduating or, you know, going to college, that's going to be a problem for us as a society. So I think collective accountability and really kind of demanding more from our schools, regardless if they're charter or traditional districts can go a long way. Yeah. Makes sense. Uh, when we come back, few more questions about living in LA for Lindsay. Thanks for listening to The Zag. Stay tuned. All right, Lindsay, how many how many different places have you lived in Los Angeles? Oh, uh, so I grew up in Southeast Los Angeles, Bell Garden specifically, but I've also lived in Whittier. I've lived in Compton. Now I live in South Pasadena. Got it. And I feel like there's a lot of talk about neighborhoods and neighborhoods evolving and changing and you've lived in a lot of different places like what's your what's your take on how neighborhoods have changed in LA in the last 10-15 years Hmm. well uh gentrification with a lot of the I mean I grew up in a lower income neighborhoods and so I see the changes that's happening um personally one of the experiences that I had is when I was looking to buy a house or a condo or something and I wanted to buy something in Bell Gardens I grew up there uh, growing up, there was always kind of the like sense amongst the students, like you are successful when you get to leave or you make it out. That was kind of the talk. And I always felt opposite. Like I want to come back to the city that I grew up in to make the city that I grew up in better. And I cannot afford to move back there. <laughs> that um, and, and that's just like crazy to me. The majority of folks who live there are renters. So it's not like the homeowners are living in the city. So I think definitely changes need to be made when you can't go back and live in the city that you grew up in. That's just, yeah, it just seems wrong. Are there any new housing complexes or apartment complexes being built in Bell no. or Bell Gardens area in that part of town? Not that I know of. No, not in that city. They did just like revamp the... So Bell Gardens actually has a casino in the city. Oh, that's right. And they did revamp that, but there are no housing complexes being built. Interesting. And then what's life like in South Pasadena? Chill. Very residential. <laughs> Super chill. I live right on the border of El Sereno and Alhambra. So I feel like I'm used to, uh, I'm really close to lots of yummy food options, but it's pretty uh, relaxing here. Yeah. 
And then last question for you. Like I said at the beginning, we're going to see our 2018 fellows again this weekend. What do you remember about the first couple weekends of your 2015 NLC experience? I remember going home exhausted every day (laughs) amount of thinking, but it was good. Um, I really appreciate the first weekend of NLC when we did the ELP planning, the life entrepreneurial planning, um, because, you know, I never really thought about how my personal ambitions and work and everything kind of intersected. I think I grew up with the belief of like, okay, I should just kind of be happy that I have like a professional job. I didn't really grow up with knowing anyone who worked professionally and then my life is somehow different. So the thought that I can kind of merge these two really important things in my life together to make them work and have like the best life that I wanted uh, was really eye-opening for me. Nice. Well said. Well, listen, thanks for all your work as an alum. You've showed up many times and we always appreciate it. And thanks for doing this episode of The Zag. And thanks for everyone who's listened. You can catch all back episodes on our webpage. You can also find it in the iTunes store. Subscribe. You can find it in Google Play. Find it on SoundCloud. Listen to all of them. We'll have another episode recorded later this week, so stay tuned. And if you want to be on a future episode, hit us up. We'd love to have you. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon. 